The song is Fly So Free by Luella and the Sun and written by Nashville guitarist Joe V. McMahon. Joe has toured with Leanne Womack, Katie Lang, Shelby Lynn, Webb Wilder, Radney Foster, and Kevin Gordon. He lives in East Nashville and plays gigs with other local bands and musicians. I caught up with Joe for a great talk about playing guitars, producing albums, and his early days of thoroughbred horse training. with DJ Fay. No lessons, no technique info. I just talk to people who play guitar. Stay tuned. Joe, great to have you here. Pleasure. Before we get into your background... I'm kind of going to put you on the spot for a minute. I'm just curious. Do you remember meeting me in the 90s? Yes, totally. As I recall, you were in town as part of Kevin Gordon's band playing the Duck Room. And before the show, the band dropped off some things at your sister's house where I believe you guys crashed that night. Yeah. Yeah, Michelle and her boyfriend Dave were great friends of mine, and the three of us went to the gig at the Duck Room. Yep. Dave was, a, I loved Dave. We all miss Dave. Everyone who knew him loved him and uh, think about him, think about him an awful lot. He and Michelle came to some real special Thanksgivings at my house in Nashville in the late 90s and early 2000s, of which Webb Wilder would usually be there and other feral musicians that didn't get to go home, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was always a great time. Well, I knew your sister, and I worked with her years ago, and she had talked about that the family was around horses. Uh, and I know a little bit of that story, but it wasn't just like a typical farm with horses, right? You you guys were you know, raising or, or breeding? It's complicated and multi-layered, of course, but I'll try to keep it brief. But, uh, you know, my our dad was a, was a horse trainer, a thoroughbred horse trainer. And so my early childhood and Michelle's early childhood was traveling around, you know, and living in a house trailer on the backside of different race tracks because we would move every few months to a different track, whether it was in Cincinnati or in Chicago or East St. Louis. There was two different tracks in East St. Louis, Hot Springs, Arkansas, you know, Louisville, whatever. So we were bouncing around all over the place at the point. And, uh, and I, they, I was bouncing my first three years of public school were uh, well, not even all of it was public, but, uh, uh, was in different places. I was traveling all the time, changing schools. Then it was time for my sister to start school and they decided they can't keep doing this with two kids. So we settled down on my grandfather's farm out in New Haven, Missouri. And, uh, and at that point, uh, my dad started driving a beer truck and we started raising thoroughbred horses and and then we started getting some pigs and some, it became a whole different dynamic, but it all kind of still revolved around horses. But then we, then it became a much more rural thing. You know? So my, up until I was in third grade, I was traveling all the time, you know, and I was making new friends all the time. And, 
and we were, like I said, our life was on the backside of the racetrack. So as a young child, I still remember hearing the sounds of Al Green and Marvin Gaye, you know, blasting out of radios in the barn because the grooms and the hot walkers would be listening to that stuff. I also remember a story about your mother going to consult a psychic on occasion. Uh, My grandmother, my dad's mom, she lived in Hot Springs, and I went with her a couple times, and she had to drive 30 or 40 minutes to Malvern, Arkansas, to go see this woman, and I would have to wait in the living room, and that woman was Billy Bob Thornton's mom. That's the story I remember. Yeah, I thought that was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Michelle had talked about how you guys were sometimes there when, and I, I guess he might have been around when you guys were there. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I thinking back about it, you know, I don't remember ever running into him at the house or anything, but I had to wait in the living room while she had her session, you know, and uh, but I just remember being in there by myself. He was probably already playing drums in bands in Little Rock, yeah, I actually saw him one time. I was at, uh, seeing Elvis Costello up in Detroit, and the opening band was Billy Bob's band, and he was on drums. Yeah, I knew those guys a little bit. At the time, they were also playing with uh, Marty Stewart. And uh, I always thought it'd be interesting to meet Billy Bob, which I never got to do, but talk to him about all that. You started playing guitar at a pretty young age. Uh, who were your first influences? Well, you know, I mean, we were living out on the farm, and I really wanted to play drums, but, you know, mom and dad weren't too excited about that prospect. <laughs> and uh, uh, and there was a store in Washington, Missouri that was running. A, you could do trial lessons for six weeks for some kind of package deal. And, and so I got an acoustic guitar and started, you know, working out of the Mel Bay book one. I wasn't even listening to music at the time, but it was kind of fun to try to to learn the instrument. And I liked the sound of the instrument, you know, like the way the strings vibrated. It was a cool thing. And so I just kind of picked at it here and there for a while, took lessons there. Six months would go by and I took lessons from somebody else for a little while. And then, uh, you know, and then at one point I got an electric guitar, ordered one from the Sears catalog. And at the end, I had friends at school. We'd talk about listening to Zeppelin and ACTC, you know, and what songs we liked, you know, and all that stuff. And, and then I, I went through several guitar teachers. There used to be a place in Washington, Missouri called Don's Music. It was called something before that. But anyway, uh, I finally got this really good guitar teacher named Ron Ruskowski, who is kind of like, you know, he's kind of a pillar of the St. Louis guitar music scene in my estimation. And he's still there. He's been teaching music classes and band directing and teaching guitar around St. Louis for years and also playing in bands like the Max Creek Band. And he's a great guitar player and a great guy and a great teacher. And I got my first lessons with him when I was 13 or 14. And, you know, he he said, uh, have you ever heard of Eric Clapton or Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or Jeff Beck? And I'm like, no, hang on. Let me write those names down. You know, I didn't know who those guys were. And, and, uh, and then I went over to Walmart. They didn't really have very much, you know. And so at one point we were in St. Louis and I made, I made my mom stop at Peaches. And I went in and bought, Are uh, uh, You Experienced was on sale. And the, I looked at the cover and I was just like, 
holy shit, you know, what is this? And went home, dropped the needle and, and my brain exploded, you know, it was like Hendrix became the deal, you know? Yeah. Those album covers just sort of drew me in too. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Love that experience. Yeah. yeah. It's not like that now so much. I don't think, you know, something about the, the 12 inch photo, you know, the 12 inch artwork. It's really kind of arresting holding it in your hand in this record store. Yeah, I still have a fair amount of vinyl and I just like, like a lot of the things I just, I like the packaging. I like the, you know, the liner notes. I mean, I still can't let go of that. I still, I regret that I did unload, you know, I, in the lean years, I did sell a lot of my vinyl and now I kind of kicking myself, but I'm starting to even build some of that back up again. I have tons of it. And in fact, keep thinking that I should try to thin it out, you know, and uh, cull the, Stuff that's got scratches and right. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> stuff that's not the best record by the artist. In 2013, a fire destroyed Joe McMahon's home studio. The control room was completely ruined. Most of the house survived the fire, but there was extensive smoke damage, including some soot and ash on his guitars and amps. An overloaded power strip was suspected to have been the cause. Luella and the Sun, with Joe on guitar, shot a video for the song you're hearing, I Got Soul, Amid the Ruins. Joe was just thankful that no one was hurt. He told officials from the fire department, we're fine and it's a beautiful day. When you first started playing in front of audiences, was that in a band of your own or were you asked to back other bands or sit in with other bands? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, I moved there when I was 15, I think. And, uh, and I met some guys there, you know, in high school. We started getting together and jamming and playing. And, and we were a band, you know. It wasn't my thing. And we tried to write some songs and we played some gigs. You know, and it was fun. It was very creative. You know, we'd get together and play, gosh, I don't know, probably four nights a week, you know, after school, go home, get something to eat, go play with the guys, you know. But we never really, you know, we didn't play very much. It wasn't like we were working, we were 15, 16 years old or whatever. And uh, and then after that, uh, I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, right out of high school. And then, you know, I got down there and that's a much bigger city and it's a very, at that time anyway, it was a very, there was a music scene. There was a lot of people playing, a lot of people doing it. And, uh, and so all, then all of a sudden I was kind of a small fish, you know, in this big pond of all these other dudes playing, which was very healthy. And, uh, and so I got in this band with these guys and I was just a guitar player, you know, but we, we were playing gigs. I was 17 years old and we were playing in clubs. 
you know, the drinking age at that time was 18. <laughs> it was, it was the wild west, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is fun. When you weren't playing on stage, who were some of the first bands or artists that you would go out and see play live? Oh, wow. Uh, gosh, you know, when I was living in Missouri, there really wasn't much to go see and getting to St. Louis was a big deal. And I moved to hot Springs and right when I, I re- I've been thinking about this one a lot lately, for some reason, I got my driver's license in November. And then like, I don't know, it seems like it was, you know, March or April, uh, there was a blues festival in little rock. So I would barely been driving and, uh, and I bought tickets to this blues festival and drove in the rain on the interstate to <laughs> little rock to go see a long list of what now is like, wow, you know, sun seals and Sedell Davis. But the big closer of this whole day was, uh, Albert King. Oh, wow. And, uh, and man, it was really amazing. It really blew my mind. And after he finished playing, I went around behind. I somehow I had the sense to know, like, just go around behind. Maybe he'll catch him coming off the stage. And I did. And I shook his hand and, his hands the size of my chest, you know, <laughs> and I don't think I even said anything. I think I just shook his hand and like, whoa, you know, but, uh, that was an amazing experience. And then I moved to Shreveport and I was at the semi-famous gig when Stevie Ray played, oh. uh, where Kenny Wayne Shepard was on the side of the stage and he was, you know, he was like 10 years old or something. <laughs> I was 17. And that was the gig where, you know, it, uh, and now I've, I've, and the, the two opening bands, I played with all those guys eventually. They were Shreveport bands and I played with them and some of them ended up coming to Nashville. But seeing Stevie that day, that night was pretty incredible. I bet. I keep thinking about Albert King and that flying V. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Loud. <laughs> I'd never been to see music very much. So just being somewhere where dudes had their shirts off and were drinking beer, that was a big deal, you know? Sure, yeah. I like coffee, and I admit, I've become a bit of a coffee snob. I drink coffee black because, hey, if you want to load up a cup with cream and sugar and syrups and all that, well, whatever. I want my coffee to be delicious without adding anything to it. I take the time to do pour-overs at home. I grind the beans and use my Chemex. The process is worth the wait, and when I buy beans, I buy coffee from my buddy String Bean Pete, coffee roaster and owner of String Bean Coffee. Pete's goal is to offer the finest beans from around the world. He roasts them passionately in small batches in non-computerized, old-school ways to music under a disco ball. Yeah, you heard that right. He's a bit of a kook, but that's why I like him. And I really, really, really like string bean coffee. Find out more at stringbeancoffee.com. I read in an interview somewhere that you liked the film scores of Nino Rota, who I also love. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I kind of sort of have a little collection going of film scores. And yeah, I really love Yeah, I had kind of a an affinity for the stuff he did with Fellini. And then of course he did, he did the score for the Godfather too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
he just had that classic sense of Italian melody, you know, the Puccini, some of the greatest melodies of all time are Italian, right? Right. And, and, and Rota, he obviously like that took pride in being Italian in that regard, you know, I mean, La Strada, that melody, yeah, which, uh. which is written into the movie, you know, mm-hmm. you, you hear the, the theme coming up all the time, you know, that's great stuff. Well, uh, what are you listening to these days? Uh, I've been listening to a lot of soul jazz, a lot of sixties, Grant Green and stuff like that. Yeah, nice. I'm in a couple of little bands where we're doing a lot of that kind of music. And uh, so just out of necessity, I've been having to learn all these songs, which yeah, is really fun. Love Grant Green. Yeah. Oh, I think you'd also mentioned that you've been listening to some West Montgomery. Oh, yeah. 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 I was just recently in Indianapolis. I went along with my wife on a business trip there. And while she was working, I discovered that his resting place was like 10 minutes from where we were staying and i was just kind of killing time that day yeah i went over there and just drove over to you know this modest little you know just sort of bittersweet experience but yeah it was a, kind of a small cemetery and i just asked at the front i said you know where's his graveside and they wrote on a little map you know just kind of penciled in like where i could find it and was really kind of struck by just this small headstone but did have a guitar engraved on it and it was just really something that, but yeah he just no, you know no big monument or anything which he, i guess he wouldn't really expect it to be necessarily but uh for somebody who's yeah. just so huge in my mind it's just like i was kind of just struck yeah just like struck by how just sort of humble that experience was that's great well you know i mean uh it's funny because i listen to podcast interviews with guitar players all the time <laughs> and earlier this week or last week I was listening to an interview with Joe DiOrio, who's oh, yeah. a great jazz, is a great jazz guitar player. And he, you know, he's in his 80s now, so he goes way back. So he knew and played with tons of the Mount Rushmore of jazz, and uh, including Wes. He was buddies with Wes. Wow. I was talking about, uh, you know, when Wes would come to Chicago, Joe DiOrio was like, look, man, don't stay at a hotel. Come stay at my house. <laughs> so so Wes would come and stay at his place and they would hang out at night, play together and talk. He just like, he made it really clear that Wes was like just a sweet guy. You know, and you could be talking about some guy that played guitar that sucked and Wes would be like, oh man, he's great. Kind of come to his defense. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Yeah, man, he can do this thing. You know, he, he, he was one of those guys. And, and he, I mean, I don't know, for some reason, it seems like you can hear that he's playing. Just a, a, a humility, you know, or just or not even a humility, just a, a no ego. You know? Right. He's just, he's doing it because he loves it, you know? Yeah, I always got that sense. Well, I do at some point want to talk about your work as a producer, but I'm also interested in the guitars and amps and equipment you like and that you use. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if you have like this vast array of stuff, but uh, is there anything you're particularly fond of or things that you use on a regular basis? Well, I mean... Uh, I've got a lot of stuff and, and I do believe in making art by any means necessary. And sometimes a piece of equipment can be a muse that, that uh, takes you in a different direction. You know, you get in a, uh, you get in an old vintage MG, you're going to drive differently than in a Cadillac. Right. You know? <laughs> and uh, just the smell alone. And, you know, guitars are definitely that way. And all, all of the equipment that you use to, make and record music can be that way microphones whatever speakers um 
but in the you know but over the years i seem to have settled into um this stratocaster that i have that uh, i've had for god i don't know i guess 25 years now and uh it's just you know i'm not even sure if it's the best guitar or best stratocaster but it's become a part of my body you know, feels I right put it on and i don't even notice it like it's just it's my teeth you know, <laughs> whatever you know what i mean like yeah. it's it's just there and and uh which means you can just kind of get right to to business you know? sure and then uh, a few years ago i bought a 50s es 175 uh and i play that guitar every day <laughs> it, it it also in a way has become that kind of thing i pick it up it's just you can go right to music you don't have to think about Oh, why is the nut width so weird? Um, but you know, but again, that's sometimes it's fun to pick up something where you have questions and then the equipment takes you to a different space. This is Joe V. McMahon. You're listening to Frets with DJ Fay. Well, I have a fairly basic, probably more like a rudimentary understanding of some areas of production um, and, you know, sound editing, but, but mainly production. But for anyone out there who doesn't, can you tell me a little bit about, like, when you first began to produce other people's music, what's your approach to it? Do you have any particular approach that you maybe think is is also kind of unique to you and, and kind of feels right for you? Well, it's a deep and esoteric conversation, but um, you know, when I first started doing it, you know, I, I took it very seriously, you know, and I was like, if I'm going to do this, if somebody's going to ask me to do this, shit, I better figure out how to be good. You know? <laughs> and, and what does that mean? You know, uh, I've always uh, been very opinionated about this sounds good. That sounds like shit. You know, uh, that guy, when that, that, he's playing on top of the beat. It doesn't work right there. You know, just listening to records or whatever, you know. And, um, and then you start doing it, you start making records and then you're like, Oh shit, you know, okay, here we go. And it's funny because you start studying different producers and it's kind of all over the map. You know, some of the biggest names in record production are guys that never went into the tracking room. You know, they stayed in the control room and they, right. you know, uh, it's the guy's name is it Mickey most that produced the animals, you know? Uh, the, I mean, those animals records are amazing. Oh yeah. And then you find out that that guy, eh, he wasn't very hands-on. He didn't really do that much, you know, which means that those guys, Eric Burton and those guys were like 22 years old and they were putting those arrangements together themselves, you know, and they were getting those sounds themselves, which is really even more mind blowing. Uh, you know, the, you know, their, their, their conservative way of playing and way of putting those parts together is just mind blowing to be, just kids, you know? Right. Um, but then you got guys like Daniel Lanois, you know, who's like all up in it, man. Very lush, a very lush sound. And yeah. Yeah. But he's like playing and he's telling people what to play. And he's like, you know, engineering in a real bold way. And it's just like, he's way involved. You know, it sometimes becomes his record, you know? Um, same with a guy like John Bryant. You know, who's like playing all the instruments and all this stuff going on and everything, you know. And then there's Rick Rubin, who comes in, from what I understand, comes in 
once a week, you know, and listens and goes, Oh, you need to work on the bridge. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so there's all these different approaches and which leaves you scratching your head. Like, well, shit, what is my approach? How am I going to, and really, you know, you're left with the conclusion that your job is just to make the music better. Right. You know, and, and help be a conduit between the artist who's usually the songwriter and the audience. And so you're going to help the artist reach their audience and help their audience understand what the artist is trying to come up, you know, trying to say. Right. So then your job is to become the biggest fan of the artist and get inside of it and really try to be creative with it and understand it and translate it to whoever the audience might be. And, uh, and before I got into production, um, I was playing guitar with a guy named Kevin Gort uh, in the mid nineties. And, you know, and I was all into playing guitar and practicing and working on all this stuff and doing all this stuff. And then he would give me a cassette of a three chord song and I'd drive around and listen to it and it would just slay me. And I'm just like, how am I going to play anything that doesn't take away from what's already there? And so I started uh, at the same time, I was also still a fan of uh, movie soundtracks, you know, and film scoring. And, uh, and I thought, I just need to, these are, these songs are like little movies already. It's yeah, a little yeah. three, three or four minute movie. So as a guitar player, I just need to kind of try to film score it, you know, and play something that really gets behind the lyric and, and supports it. You know? And so then when the producing thing came along, that just became a more fulfilled version of that. You know, it's like film scoring yeah. songwriters. I keep thinking about what you said a few minutes ago, which really struck me when you were talking about um, like Daniel Lanois. Sometimes it almost feels like his album, which I thought that a lot about like Robbie Robertson's for, you know, the self-titled Robbie Robertson album. I, it, just, yeah. it feels like, well, which it kind of is. <laughs> it's like a Daniel Lanois. And so, you know, a couple of the, at least a couple of the U2 albums, or I don't know, did he only do Joshua Tree? I don't even remember. Uh, no, he did. He did uh, a few of them. Uh, he did. Uh, I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 I can't remember the one where, where the edge is using the auto wah. It's a huge hit. The uh, mysterious ways. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, uh, but you know, but uh, I'm a huge fan of the Emmy Lou Harris. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, man, that's, that's so Lanois. You know, and uh, and it's a great record. I mean, I'm not in any way dissing him or his approach or any of those records. I'm a huge fan. It's just there's these just all these different approaches that work, which leaves you scratching your head. There's not a, <laughs> there's not a, a tried and true technique you know, right. for being a producer. And some producers are engineers. You know, that's their things. They really they do their producing through the sounds that they make, you know, the way they record the music and the way they mix it, you know, and they lean in that direction. And they occasionally say, you need to work on the bridge. But a lot of the times they're quieter, you know. Right. And, and then there's guys that don't know anything about what any of the knobs do. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and so it, it, it's, uh, it's just about whatever you think you can bring to the table, you know. And if you can't, if you don't know anything about engineering, then you have to hire the guy that creates a sound that 
you're compatible with. Right. You're more producing and directing, kind of directing the engineer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or, or the engineer comes in and he's already got a sound that you're way into, you know. I've mixed a lot of records that I wish I could have farmed out, but uh, I didn't know anybody that I, nobody came to mind that, that, you know, that like was like, oh no, if that guy mixes it, it'll, he'll understand exactly where I'm coming from. Hmm. You know, I've been scared, I've been scared to pass it off because uh, you, you get it that far along and then you want to just go ahead, finish it off, you know, and not pass it away to somebody else who might take it in a totally different direction that you aren't expecting you know and sometimes that can be good <laughs> sometimes that can be healthy but you know usually the budgets i've been i've worked with <laughs> you can't afford a you know a nine thousand dollar mistake um, or a twenty five hundred dollar mistake. <laughs> <laughs> 2020 the year the pandemic caught us all off guard and derailed our lives in a lot of ways. How, how did that affect playing and producing for you? Well, I, like everybody else, had more time on my hands than usual, you know, and I, I was able to get into my garden again, <laughs> which had been a while. Just to be outside, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and I did do some recording, but it was more like you'd work for a month or six weeks, and then you'd have two months off, you know, kind of thing. I did a really cool little EP with John Bird and Paul Niehaus. Um, it's just the two of them. It, it, the artist is John Bird, but it, the name of the record is Me and Paul. And that was that was pretty interesting. I tended to do, I did several things where I either recorded or mixed for very minimal music, you know, like songwriter, acoustic guitar and vocals. Um, I've been working on this record for, it's a trio record. It's three guys. Martin Harley, Daniel Kimbrough, and Sam Lewis. And um, and that's a pretty interesting record that we've got going. Martin Harley's over in England, so we would um, record, and then we would Dropbox him a rough mix of what we recorded, and then he would be in a studio on, on the same day, and he, and he would overdub his parts at a studio in England and Dropbox the parts back to us. And actually, next week, I start mixing that record. and. Uh, so there's been some recording, you know, not a full schedule of it. In large part, I spent a lot of time playing guitar and just sitting around the house playing whatever I want to play, which ended up being a lot of jazz and blues and just trying to grow musically as a musician, you know, which is when you're making records all the time, um, you can grow in a perceptual way, but you don't really grow. Your skill doesn't grow. In fact, it probably got worse over time because I wasn't spending a lot of time with my hands on the instruments. When you're making records, you're usually sitting between the speakers, you know, working on mixes and overdubbing simple parts. Um, so spending a lot of time on guitar has really been an amazing thing. And, and I feel, I feel that calling, you know, like I need to continue with that. Yeah. I think during that period last year, it was another one of those periods where I realized I just haven't even picked up any of my guitars in a while. And I'm not a great player, but I do like to play. And I I did find myself playing more just because, you know, I was, wor I was working, but I did have a lot of time on my hands that I was like, didn't feel like I could really go too many places except, you know, get in the car and get out of the house just to go for a drive. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I was finally starting to play a little bit more and it felt good. Yeah. I, I I did that go for a drive thing a few times during COVID. 
it, I went for a drive at 1 a.m. one night. <laughs> Cabin fever. Yeah, it was like April or May of 2020. And uh, I went downtown Nashville at 1 a.m. And I don't know if you know what our lower Broadway scene is like. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it was me and one cop. And everything was closed <laughs> and there was nobody. And it was Twilight Zone. Wow. You know, but yeah, you know, the playing thing is like, uh, you know, the more you play, the more you play. <laughs> the, less, the less you play, the less you play. It's like exercise in a way, you know, it's like once you once you start wiring your brain patterns in that direction, putting your attention on it, you know, it just becomes for me, it becomes addicting. And uh, I just want to do it more and more. Yeah, it's been well over 10 years. I don't even remember how many years, but uh, I remember seeing Steve Earle at the Exit Inn. I, I, I really do love Nashville. I don't get down there often enough, but I, I really love Broadway and Music Row. Well, uh, Music Row is not to be a downer, but <laughs> it's not, there's not much Music Row left. You know, it's uh, most of the studios are gone and uh, it's a lot of condos and, you know, there's a J Crew. I did hear that. Yeah, that's changed quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite studios is still there. Uh, it's called House of David. And it's owned by a guy named David Briggs. And uh, he played with Elvis in the 70s. And uh, House of David was a rehearsal space for Elvis Presley for a little while. And uh, it's a it's got some vibe, as you could imagine. And they've got some great gear also. Huh. I'm assuming Groon Guitars is still there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have some great guitar stores. <laughs> I was in a pizza joint of all places, just a couple of miles away from here, and uh, waiting for my to-go order and talking to the nice guy who was sort of managing the store. I don't know, we struck up a conversation. Turns out he's the brother of was Bob Groon. Is it Bob that owns the old Groon Guitars? George. George, George. Okay, but maybe this guy's name is Bob. And uh, Yeah. Anyway, he was a, the brother of whoever owned Groon Guitars. Groom Guitars and Carter Vintage between those two, man, you can you can have a good time. Go have lunch and then hit those two spots. If you're a podcast addict like me, you might have thought about starting your own. I'm having a lot of fun creating and sharing my podcast, Frets with DJ Fay. It seemed daunting at first, and I had no idea how to proceed after recording my first episodes. Then I discovered Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has helped over 100,000 people, even knuckleheads like me, launch a podcast. The tools they provide make it incredibly easy to get your thing going. They'll also help you get your podcast into all the major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. You get a great-looking website, audio players to drop into other websites, analytics, and tools to promote your podcast. They help with it all. Learn the ins and outs of podcasting through people who eat, drink, and breathe it. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. Now, back to mine. Well, Joe, what advice would you give to aspiring young guitar players? Oh, man. Um, you know, do it because you love it. And uh, if that means, um, you know, I mean... It, it, follow the follow the muse you know play the play the way you want to play and and follow your heart and work really hard at that and if that means getting a job to pay the bills so that you can play what you want to play then do that 
some people's calling is to be a side man and the game of that. And I guess I can't really, that's cool too. But, um, you know, there's been times where I was thinking more about how am I going to make money than how am I going to make art? And I feel like that's kind of a tortured place to be. And, uh, there's nothing wrong with figuring out another way to make money for a little while so that you have time, uh, and space to think about the type of art that you want to make. Because if you take uh, a road gig with somebody as a sideman, but it's not really your thing. Uh, and you might think to yourself, okay, I'm only going to be gone on Fridays and Saturdays and go pay my, my mortgage or my rent. Uh, it it's not, it doesn't really work like that because you come home and the residual effects of the fans that you just experienced and the talks that you heard in the van or the bus and the people that you talk to on the phone during the week, and it becomes your whole network. And that colors the, the, the type of art that you want to make. And, it, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit insular about things. You know, if you need to back off from that kind of stuff and do it the way you want to do it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap things up with a two-part question. What does your middle initial V stand for? <laughs> Veldon, V-E-L-D-O-N. That's one you don't hear every day. Is there a story behind that? Is it a family name? It's a family name, and as far as I can tell, uh, it's the McMahon side, and there's supposed to be some Dutch in there. And one time when I was in Holland, I saw the word Veldon. I think it might have been spelled different, but I think that's where it comes from. It was a burning question that I just had to know. Um, and the the other thing I was just going to say, what's on the horizon for Joe McMahon? Um, well, next week I start mixing the Harley Kimbrough Lewis record. Then the week after that, uh, Kevin Gordon's coming in and we're going to do some recording. Nice. And uh, I think we're going to be starting a record soon. We're going to get, we're going to record one song and then talk about getting back in and doing the full thing. Uh, and then after that, I've got a guy from Louisiana named Drew Landry, this really cool songwriter coming and we're going to make a record in September. Uh, and a guy named Will Owen, he's a great songwriter here in Nashville. Uh, we're about to start a record also at the end of September. So it's about to get, about to get busy for a while at least. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Oh man. Good time. That's the title track from Kevin Gordon's 1998 album, Cadillac Jack's Number One Son, featuring Joe McMahon on lead guitar. The song was covered in 2000 by Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. I loved catching up with Joe, and special thanks go out to Kevin Gordon and Mark Chuchik for their contributions to this episode. Thank you.
Next up on frets, John Horton, who you know from New Patrons of Husbandry, The Rockhouse Ramblers, Kamikaze Cowboy, Karate Bikini, The Bottle Rockets, and more recently, Sunvolt. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 